with me, if you would, to Psalm 20. to say it's been 20 weeks that we've been in the Psalms, but I think it's actually been 18 because I did one of them on a Sunday night and my brother-in-law did one of them on a Sunday night, but still, uh, it's encouraging to see our progress through the book and just to be reminded of a variety of truths that we've come across so far as we've looked at God's Word together. When we look at a Psalm like Psalm 20, uh, I think one of the questions that it addresses in our minds is just this question of whether God hears our prayers and for whom does God hear prayer because sometimes as we pray week to week and as we seemingly sometimes bring the same requests over and over and maybe don't get an immediate answer we perhaps start to doubt to question our mind whether God hears whether God cares about the things that we're praying about and what is the ultimate outcome of that effort that has been put into prayer And the first part of this psalm, uh, about half of it actually, is a just a a statement of, almost a statement of blessing. A number of phrases that start out with, may the Lord, or may the name of God, may He. All of these sorts of ideas where someone is basically saying, God grant that this take place. And it sort of builds to what we see in verse 6. We'll get there shortly. But we start out, first of all, interestingly enough, with you. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. Verse 9 closes out with may the king answer us in the day we call. And it's interesting that in verse 6, it says, I know that the Lord saves his anointed. And so we have this interesting dynamic here that the The anointed is the king of Israel who is saved by the ultimate king. And the prayer starts out, may God do this for you. And then it's may God help us. And so just it's interesting to note that transition throughout the psalm. But let's start in verse 1 and see what are these phrases that the psalmist lays out for us. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob set you securely on high. May He send you help from the sanctuary and support you from Zion. May He remember all your meal offerings and find your burnt offering acceptable. May He grant your heart's desire and fulfill all your counsel. We will sing for joy over your victory. In the name of our God, we will set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves His anointed. He will answer Him from His holy mountain, His holy heaven, with the saving strength of His right hand. Some boast in chariots and some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. They have bowed down and fallen, but we have risen and stood upright. Save, O Lord, may the King answer us in the day in which we call. And so when it says, may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble, we might ask, what is the day of trouble? It's not specifically named what that day of trouble is. And the emphasis of the psalm is that it's a day of trouble for God's people It would have been in Israel, and the king is the leader, the representative of the people. And so before we take it and apply it to ourselves, which I think is a valid thing to do, I think it's important for us to consider uh, what this looked like in Israel's history. There were many instances in which they experienced days of trouble. For example, when they were trying to leave Egypt and Pharaoh's army is pursuing them. Or once they got into the promised land and the peoples of the land were attacking them, 
or even later during the time that David reigned when there were various enemies that opposed them. Sometimes we have the idea that David became king and all of a sudden he ruled over the entirety of all the tribes, but there was a, a period of time in which there was a lack of allegiance by at least some of the tribes to David, and so certainly he probably had some of those things in mind as well. When it says, May the name of the God of Jacob set you securely on high, I think that um, it, is, it is interesting that he reminds us the God of Jacob. You, you kind of expect to see the God of Abraham, right? Because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is a common uh, phrase that we see throughout the Old Testament. But the name of the God of Jacob, later Israel, He's pointing out the fact that there is a covenant relationship between God and His people, and that's where their strength lay, that's where their help would come from, and this request would that they would be set on high. Uh, which is interesting because there's a sense in which God's people were already exalted by His choice and His favor to them. There's a sense in which the king was already exalted because God had appointed him as the ruler, and yet, certainly, asking God to reaffirm what he had already determined to do is a valid and a, a proper thing to pray. When it says, may he send you help from the sanctuary, certainly we recognize that God is not limited to any one specific place. This was the error of the nation surrounding the Israelites, right? The Israelites defeated them in the plain. They said, let's go on the mountain. The Israelites defeated them on the mountains. They said, let's go down on the plain. Same kind of idea... Um, when the, the sailors are there with Jonah, right? Jonah is woken up from his sleep. The sailors say, you need to pray to your God. We've already prayed to our gods, gods of this part of the sea or that part of the land. You need to pray to your God. And Je Jonah basically says, I've made angry the God who made everything, by the way. So we're all in really big trouble. That was the attitude of the peoples. And yet, even though God had a sanctuary, the Bible points out the fact that God didn't need that house to live in. In fact, God told David, you're not going to build it for me because you've been a man of bloodshed, a man of war. I'm going to wait until your son builds it for me. And so God didn't need the temple, didn't need the tabernacle. It was merely a place for his people to gather. And yet it was the thing that they looked to as being the place where God connected with them as his people and so it was very important to them even though it was not necessary God didn't need it in the same way that his people needed it and when it says support you from Zion that would be another name for the city of Jerusalem so there's this sense in which even though God is not a localized God God is not a God of the hill or of the valley or of the stream or of the ocean there is a sense in which God among his people dwelt in the temple which was in Zion, which was in Jerusalem, which was not yet built at the time David was writing this, so it would have actually been the tabernacle. And then when it says in verse 3, may he remember all your meal offerings and find your burnt offerings acceptable, think back to the story of Cain and Abel. What was the conflict there? God didn't find Cain's offering acceptable in his sight. Cain becomes angry, he kills his brother Abel. So much of Israel's worship was tied up with this constant offering of sacrifices for a variety of reasons, because someone had sinned, because a child had been born, 
because it was the time of year to come to certain festivals. There's all of these things going on all throughout the year. And this prayer, this petition, this request is that God would find those things acceptable. And what was it that God required of those things for them to be found acceptable? If they matched the requirements that He had laid out. For certain types of offerings, you had to bring an unblemished animal, not whichever one you could spare that had been torn by a wolf or fallen off a cliff and had a broken leg or, or was missing an eye because it had gotten caught in a thorn bush, but perfect animals for certain types of the sacrifices. For others, it was pick the first of these things. For others, it was whatever walks through the gate, count off every tenth and, and give that to God. You don't get to pick and choose. God will choose it for Himself. And, and so the people would see this petition fulfilled to the degree that they were living up to the requirements that God had required of them. But then it comes to verse 4. May He grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all of your counsel. There when it says counsel, it probably was more a sense of purposes, plans. Um, it's, not, it's not counsel. It has a little bit different sense than the way that we often use the word. We read that, and we might pause. We might say, I thought I, maybe I wasn't supposed to desire anything. I'm only supposed to want what God wants. But there's a sense in which this prayer is, may He grant you your heart's desire. So part of the question would be, is what I want aligned with what God wants? Not so that I am sort of... Uh, there's a pagan idea of, of I lose my individual nature and become part of this amorphous whole, this, this uh, life force that permeates the universe. And I'm no longer an individual, and, and that's sort of the goal. And sometimes that idea sort of comes over into Christianity. There's, there's a, a problem with that from the sense that the goal is not for our individuality to be stamped out and removed and obliterated. The goal is for our individuality to come into conformity with God and who He is, what God wants of us. And the degree to which that is true is the degree to which I believe God answers this sort of a prayer. May He grant you your heart's desire. If my heart's desire is for sin, clearly God's not going to grant that. If my heart's desire is to see God glorified, to see people who don't know Him come to follow Him, to see His work go forth in the world, God is going to grant that heart's desire, and that is a legitimate and a proper thing to pray. And with regards to fulfilling all your counsel, all your plans, all your purposes, it's along the same lines. If my plans, if my purposes are how I can live life selfishly and do things the way that I want and all of those sorts of things, God's not going to bless that because that's not in line with His purpose. And yet to the degree that our purpose lines up with God, certainly this prayer would be answered. He asks why in verse 5, does it sort of change focus? May He grant your heart's desire and fulfill all your counsel. We will sing for joy over your victory in the name of our God. We will set up our banners. There seems to be an anticipation of what we're going to see in verses 6 through 8 in that God is going to answer these prayers, these, these statements of may God do this, may God do that. And then verse 5 is sort of a statement of, of confidence. God will do this. We will see God's work. 
We will sing for joy over your victory. In the name of our God, we will set up our banners. In other words, the, the people of Israel had this sense that as they, as they went forth under the king that God had appointed for them, as God answered their requests, their prayers, when they called out for him, they would go forth in victory. They would see God work. They would see God fulfill his purpose. But the end of verse 5 sort of goes back to the may God do this with a sort of a summary phrase, may the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Sometimes we have this question, is it right to ask God for things? Because sometimes people say, well, we need to just quit asking God for so much stuff. But I think there's a balance there, right? It's not never ask God for anything. It's ask God for the right things. And ask God for the right things in connection with the other sorts of things that we're also supposed to be praying. Things that are pleasing to Him. Things that are in connection with worship, like verse 3. And in connection with the trials and difficulties of life, like in verses 1 and 2. That are in connection with the decisions that we have to make in life. Like it says in James, Ask of God for wisdom and He will give you wisdom as you need it. So is it wrong to ask God for things? No. But there's a difference between merely asking God, give me this material thing, give me this other thing, help this other thing go well, versus a balanced prayer life that encompasses a variety of requests that includes things like spiritual benefit to other people and to myself, that includes things like I'm going through this time of difficulty and there's nowhere else for me to turn, things like I need wisdom uh, figuring out what would be pleasing in your sight. So can we ask God for things? Certainly. But those things ought to be in line with God and His Word. And then we come to verse 6. How can the psalmist lay out all of these prayer requests before God? What's the basis for him coming before God and saying... May God do this, may God do that, or the basis of the people repeating this psalm in the context of worship and, and sort of saying it as a blessing, saying it as a statement of what they want to see God do in and among them. What's the basis for that? Verse 6, Now I know that the Lord saves His anointed. He will answer him from His holy heaven with the saving strength of His right hand. I know that the Lord saves His anointed. That's a statement of confidence that because God has put a particular person in a particular role, specifically to be the anointed one, the king of Israel, that God would save him. Immediately raises questions in our minds. What about Saul? What about Ahab? What about all of these others? Did God not keep his word that the psalmist expects God would do? I think that this is a proverbial type of statement. God saves His anointed. There's, an, there's certainly exceptions to that statement, and I think the exceptions fall into the category of the times in which the anointed forsook God. God brought that king back, or God punished that king. So when Ahab continually went after these idols, it resulted in his physical death it did not result into all of the consequences falling on the rest of his family until after that death because there was a brief period of repentance toward the end of his life. 
And so for something like that, I, th I, th I think we see how that works out elsewhere in Scripture. But the, the confident statement that David had is that when you look overall, when you see God's purpose and His plan, God is with the one that He has appointed to be the King of Israel. God is with those people who are under that King to the degree that they are following God. And what does that help look like? He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. So again, it's interesting that it says, may he send you help from the sanctuary and support you from Zion, because that was the place where God physically resided on earth. And yet ultimately, the psalmist recognizes that the true source of God's power is not in a physical building on earth. It's the fact that he rules and reigns above all, and that's where this help and strength is going to come. And by what does it come? With the saving strength of his right hand. And we know that God is a spirit. He doesn't have a right arm in the way that we have a right arm and a right hand. This is a, a, a figure of speech that points out God's strength, God's power being put forth on behalf of his people. So the, the, the pinnacle, the main emphasis of this psalm is here in verse 6. Why does it pray verses 1 through 5? Because God saves His anointed. What does that look like in verses 7 and 8? There's a contrast that's set up here. We see this contrast many times in the wisdom literature in the Bible. The contrast between those who trust in God and those who trust in something else. The contrast between the way of the wise and the way of the fool. The contrast between what is right and what is wrong. He starts out with what's wrong. Some boast in chariots and some in horses. This was a constant struggle for the people of Israel. We're in trouble. Let's find a pagan nation that we can ally ourselves with to save us from another pagan nation instead of let's call out to God for help. They trusted in chariots. They trusted in horses. Why? Because for them, that was a sign of military strength and of might. Chariots, horses. It'd be like trusting in tanks and fighter jets and large armies and all those sorts of things today. For them, they trusted in man's strength. Despite the fact that there were clear instances in their history where it was not about numbers, it was not about military ability, it was about whose side you were on. Think about the story of Gideon. 300 warriors rout hundreds. Think about um, a later instance in Israel's history, which had not yet happened at this point, but... I mean, there's that poem maybe you learned in, in English class. The Assyrian came down like a wolf on the fold. The angel of death comes in the night. Thousands of the Assyrians fall. This hadn't yet happened, but there's parallel examples of that throughout Israel's history that they could have looked back on and said, we should not trust in chariots and horses. And David is saying here, some boast in those things, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. And there's a contrasting result. They have bowed down and fallen, but we have risen and stood upright. Those who trust in what seems to be strength, what seems to be power, will find that to fail. Those who trust in God will find strength and help. And so many times we have this idea throughout the Psalms that God is a refuge, God is a rock, God is the one who helps us. And then verse 9 says, Save, O Lord. 
This clearly goes back to verse 6. I know that the Lord saves his anointed. Save, O Lord. And now it's not just help the king, but help all of us who are your people. May the Lord hear us in the day that we call. Because there might be a tendency for us in our day because we elect our officials and we can get rid of them in a few years and put somebody else in power if uh, we don't agree with what they're doing, that there's sort of this disconnect. Here's the leader, here's me. I may not like him, I may not really have allegiance to him, but for the people of Israel, here's their king. There's this close connection between the Israelites and their king. And so this prayer that God would save the king and this recognition that God would save the king had benefits that helped the people under him and if God didn't keep that promise, it had implications for all of them as well. And so this prayer was not just God help David. This was God keep your promises to us as a people overall. So this seems kind of distant from us. We don't have a king. We don't really often refer to God as the God of Jacob. We don't feel like we trust in horses and chariots. But is there application to this in our life? Sure. Can we pray that God would answer us in the day of trouble? Yes. Is the same God who is the God of Jacob the God that we call to? Yes. God doesn't answer us from the sanctuary. It's not as though this building is the place where God dwells in the same way that He was seen to live among the people of Israel, dwell with them in the tabernacle and the temple. And yet... There's a sense in which we see from the New Testament that God still is among His people. What's the difference? Ephesians describes it like this. God dwells in and among His people. And when we call on Him, He hears us, He answers us. And how do we have access to Him? Through Christ and the work that He has done. Can we also pray that God would find our offerings acceptable? Yes. Do we offer meal offerings and burnt offerings? No, but Romans 12 says we offer ourselves as a living sacrifice wholly acceptable unto God. Should we pray that God would grant us our desires, fulfill our counsel, fulfill all our petitions? Certainly. If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives to all men generously and does not get, rebuke him. Pray to God for wisdom. Can we rejoice as God works and answers all of these sorts of prayers that are in line with His will? Yes, we can and we should. And who is the anointed of God today? I think we have to say it's Christ, right? God, in the truest sense, fulfilled this when He raised Christ from the dead. He brought him with victory on high. Christ ascended back to God's right hand. If God has done that, and if God has conquered sin and death in that way, can he and will he answer us when we call as his people? Yes. Which begs the question, do I belong to him? How do I know if I belong to him? Well, as we looked at prayer, when we first started our study on prayer uh, back in the summertime, prayer means that God's people are those who call on Him as their God. People of God are described as those who call on the name of the Lord. So how do I know if I belong to God? Do you call on the name of the Lord as the Lord, and not just as the Lord of someone else, but as your Lord? And if you do, 
if you've come to God through Jesus Christ, then I think that we can pray in similar ways to we see the psalmist praying in this psalm. We can call to God who saves and answers with confidence because God has and will exalt His anointed. And because we are connected with Him, those blessings will come to us as well. So as we go to our time of prayer, uh, I went a little longer than I had anticipated, but any quick uh, items to add?